Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate competently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 115 with Lime Ninja and author Allie Cashel. Also with us in the studio is our certified show producer, let me say that again, certified show producer, and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Miss Aurora. Hello, and in this episode you will learn the Chinese medicine concept of Jing and energy depletion, about Ali Cashel's book, Suffering the Silence, and her interviews with Lyme sufferers from all over the world. I'm very pleased to bring Ali's work to you. Uh, I'm there's starting to be quite a few books out there on and about Lyme disease, and the more the merrier, essentially. It's really great. So we have quite a few authors lined up uh, in the next few weeks, and we're going to bring them to you. And I'm just really so pleased and so tickled to be able to talk to these authors about their work and their passion about Lyme disease and bringing awareness to it or, or bringing hope for people suffering. And uh, Allie's just a wonderful, wonderful interview. Also, you're going to notice that uh, it's fairly noisy. I She's in New York City. I actually, I actually did a pretty good job of editing those noises noise out. out. Oh, okay. You might, you might, there might be a few in there every now and then. Yeah. So the morning I called her, they were doing construction in the apartment next door to her, and she had to go outside. So now she's outside in New York City, trying to find a quiet place. And well, it's New York City. So anyway, so <laughs> Aurora claims she did a great job. I haven't heard the edited audio. So thank you, Aurora, for cleaning it up and. Uh, if you want to say thank you, just uh, drop a email to info at LimeNinja.com and we'll send it on to Aurora. All right, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about Allie. All right. Uh, Allie Cashel was first diagnosed with Lyme disease in June of 1998. While studying at Bard College, she conducted a series of interviews with clients chronic Lyme disease patients in New York and around the world. She now works as an advocate for increased awareness of Lyme disease and is the co-founder of the online community Suffering the Silence, a space for patients, friends, and family to share and witness the true living experience of Lyme and other chronic illnesses. All right. Thank you, Aurora and Quickly, before we go, we're starting to get feedback from the Lime Ninja Radio Keto Challenge, and some of the feedback is absolutely amazing. So stay tuned. We'll get more into that after the interview with Allie Cashel. Hi, Allie. It's McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hi. How are you? You're a young woman, and you're a writer now, which is pretty cool. Anybody who's published a book is a writer in my book. So you're a writer and an author. <laughs> now, we know you have Lyme disease. We know you're an author. But tell us a little bit about you as a person. Like, where did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up, um, I was born in London, actually. But I grew up in Westchester County in Katona, which is just about an hour north of New York City, um, and is actually one of one of the more tick endemic areas of, of, of our country. Um, and I, I'm the oldest of five kids, and we all uh, spent so much time outside when we were growing up. So it's really uh, shouldn't have been too much of a surprise to anyone that one of us ended up um, dealing with this long term. But all of us actually had been infected with Lyme at some point or another. But thankfully, most of my siblings are. Um, all of my siblings actually are quite healthy and haven't haven't had to deal with this for an extended period of time. Um, but as I was growing up, I was I was an avid performer. I loved to do um, any sort of theater I could get my hands on, and so it's been a very cool journey to get to use the book and use this platform to uh, you know get to stand up and not perform, of course, because it's my own story, but but share my story with more people. Um, and I sort of learned this new 
love for public speaking and for speaking in front of people that um, I never really knew was there. So that's been that's been a very fun part of this all. As a father, I was roped into building sets for summer theater for my children. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> so, what, what's so you your, know the game. Yes, what's your favorite production today? Um, my favorite production? Oh, that's like out in the world right now? No, that you were in. My favorite production, when I was a junior in high school, we did at my high school the Comedy of Errors, ah. um, which is a Shakespeare play. And... I felt so cool that I had gotten into it because not all the time juniors get to be um, bigger parts in the school plays. So I felt so excited and so cool. And actually, that play is where I met and started dating my current boyfriend, who I'm still dating right now. Hey. <laughs> what role did he have? Um, he played the lead, and I played his romantic interest. Of and, course, a showman. There you go. <laughs> Kismet, right? There you go. <laughs> um, and how and when is two part question. You can do either one first. You said you have four brothers and sisters, right? And on your, in your book, you mentioned that your dad had been bid as well. Yes. And so much. How, oh, how come? How come they didn't get sick and you did? Do you have any insight into that? Just even speculation. And then tell us about yeah, kind of the early parts of Lyme disease for you. Absolutely. So my dad actually has been sick. Um, in many ways, he's, had, he's been dealt a harder hand than I have. Um, he thinks that he was probably first infected when he was 18 years old. And in the book, I actually I do an interview with him, which was one of the first times that we really sat down to talk about his experience of Lyme um, as separate from my own because our paths sort of felt incredibly intertwined all the way as I, as I was growing up. But my siblings had been bitten. Um, my brother Sean has actually dealt on and off with um, some, some issues, including pretty intense neck pain um, that seemed to be directly related to, to bites. Um, but I think that, that part of the reason that um, we seem to some people seem to stay, stay sick and some others. Of course, I'm not a doctor, so I'm, I would, I'm not the right person probably to, to give this answer. But I think that it, it probably has to do with, with our immune system and with our ability to sort of um, fight infection in general. As a little girl, I always had a very hard time, um, you know, getting over a cold or I would regularly get pneumonia, things like this. And so I think that um, there, there's probably something about my immune system in general that uh, makes it harder for me to fight disease, whereas I look at my siblings and they have um, all been blessed with relative health. And in my extended family as well, we have a lot of chronic illness in the family. Um, a cl very close cousin of mine lives with Crohn's disease. And so th this is it, it's sort of a recurring theme, I think, in my family, which suggests that there may as well be some uh, potentially genetic components to those of us who have a harder time um recovering when when we get sick that's a great answer um so thank you thank for, you thank you for that and are you familiar with bob miller and his genetic nutritional work based on the 23andme raw data yes um yes i am actually and so um i've only recently started to learn about it as i started to reflect on my own um so i'm definitely not an expert but i, I actually was just reading about that the other day I interviewed him about, hmm, I guess it's eight weeks ago now, and I'm set to do a follow-up interview. He's doing quite a bit of work with with Lyme disease and is presented at the ILADS conference. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So that's – it's something to check into. There, You know, it doesn't cover all your genes and all the possible things that go wrong, but – particularly around the methylation pathways and then some of the detoxification pathways, it can provide some interesting insight. Uh, yeah, that sounds very cool. I, I'll, I'll certainly, I'll certainly dive in. I've, I recently figured out actually that I do have the, the MTFR genetic mutation. So um, that, that's also definitely informed my thinking on, on perhaps why, um, why I've, I've stayed sick and, and um, my siblings have, have been able to get better. Yeah. I'd be 
curious to hear what you have to say later on if you pursue that that avenue. The other thing he's training yeah. he's training other people to do <clears throat> excuse me to do his process. So it's going to be I think it's really going to start to show up in more and more places and a- around chronic illness in general because he's just not uh, working with Lyme patients exclusively although they tend to seek him out uh, for obvious sure, for sure. obvious reasons. Yeah, now, it's interesting. You know, I um I was just earlier this week actually I gave a talk at at um Cornell's med school and one of the questions that came up is you know, why are some people staying so much sicker than, than others? And it's obviously a question that we circle back to over and over again, and I've circled back to over and over again in my thinking and my research on all of this. And <laughs> I've never totally had a fully or found a fully satisfying answer. And so I, I, I think it's probably, it's probably a combination of many things, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if that genetic component was a part of it. Absolutely. And it's more, I think, and I'm sure, well, I don't know if you'll agree or not, with Dr. Hartz's idea of this multifaceted disease where it's not just coming at you from one direction, it's coming at you from, what does he say, 19 different possible angles. Oh, my God, absolutely. Yeah, I actually also, I do an interview with Dr. Horowitz in the book about that very same thing. And um, one of the things that I've thought a lot about in terms of my own healing is is that we do have to treat sort of the whole body and, and also the whole person. I um, had such a hard time sort of accepting that my mental health or, or my experience, you know, as a young woman who is trying to figure out um, how to navigate long-term illness, of course, that often would cause problems with mental health. But I was so terrified of allowing that to be a part of my experience that I pushed back against that for so long. And I think until we can treat sort of the whole person and the whole experience, it's very hard for people to get better. That's so true, and I want to separate out the the physical, the mental, emotional, and and what I'm going to call spirit. And I don't mean spiritual sure. by soul, but spirit like your ability to think clearly. This is the Chinese version of it, the Chinese medicine version of it, your willpower, uh, the the brightness. It, you're looking at the glasses at half full and half empty. So for the Chinese, they have treatments with acupuncture and herbs to address those factors. And it is so. That's one of the nice things. I'm going to make a plug here for acupuncture as well. That's one of the nice things about acupuncture. Acupuncture won't cure Lyme by any stretch, but it helps with all the softer side of stuff, the emotional stuff, right. the spirit stuff. Right. And I think that I think that there is this huge push. And in my own experience, this is something I also talk about a lot, but in my own experience, I was told effectively, as so many of us have been told, that this is all in my head <laughs> and that I'm crazy. And, and so many of us have heard that over and over and over again. And so I think it's a very natural push to try and say, no, no, it's not all in my head. I, I have a, a physical disease. I have an infection in my body. And that is 100% true. But I also think that without treating that component of what's happening in our head and, and, and what the illness is, what effects that illness is having on us as people, um, it, it becomes very hard to move forward. Yes, I think they misspoke. They didn't mean it's all in your head. It, they meant it's also in your head. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and another thing that was very interesting, actually, that came up at Cornell just a few days ago is with Suffering the Silence, the organization, we work a lot with all different um, all different types of, of illnesses and chronic illnesses. And recently, we've been making a big push to include mental illness as part of that, um, as, as part of that that sort of group and, and that experience group. And I think that there, there is often sort of a, almost like an internal stigma within, within the chronic illness community that we need to be aware of and sort of push back against as well, that um, we are all people who are affected by mental health and um, we need to fight to sort of break that stigma down for sure. There's a wonderful book called Descartes' Error, by Antonio Damasio. It may be 20 years old now. And he uh, documents Descartes' argument with the church. He he wanted to do some Mm. biological experiments. So he said, look, look, bishops or whoever he was talking to, I'm not interested in the soul. You can have the soul. I just want this mortar coil. I just want the clay to take a look at. Is that okay? And basically he got their, their blessing. And what Damasio says is from that point on, the Western culture split the mental, emotional, spiritual from the physical. And no other culture really did that to our extent. Now, in some ways, that's 
allowed us to have the amazing things we've done in the West and all the technological advances and so forth and so on. But on the other hand, it's create this really rift in the ability to heal because we get this whole idea of mind over matter and, and, and this artificial split that, that really doesn't exist. You don't, you know, when you hit your, your thumb with a hammer, you get angry. It's, it's connected. And he argues that it's he, he beautifully, and he's he's an interesting combination of, uh, of of a researcher and a psychoneurologist. I mean, he's got this amazing background. He says no information gets into your brain that doesn't come through the body first. He says it's not a one way street, right? It's not a one way street. So the your soma, your physical body, influences your brain and the other way around. It's, it's a you'll love. Yeah, look that book up. You're going to love it. <laughs> yes, I will. I will have to look it up. It's just something that I think about so often these days, um, and and something that I, I struggled to think about for such a long time um, in my own experience with illness and in my own experience with disease. So I'll, I'll definitely have to take a look. And that's Descartes' error by Antonio Damasio. I'll have a link for that in the show notes. Now you live in an international city, and really your book begins to address the fact that Lyme disease is an international disease. Absolutely. Tell us about that. So I think that um, for a long time, and, and I still find this all the time when I, when I go to speak to people or when I engage with people online, there's a conception that Lyme exists only in sort of the, the, the North Atlantic states of this country. Um, and I, when I was growing up, I think one of the challenges was that Everybody knew about Lyme disease where I was growing up. It wasn't, it wasn't a secret. It wasn't anything that um, people had never heard of. It wasn't challenging to get diagnosed. Um, but people didn't think about Lyme uh, as something that you couldn't get better from. So that was my big challenge, right, was, was being pulled in these two directions of sort of what is Lyme disease. But I think in many other places, um, the question is even, does Lyme disease exist here? I've talked to so many people around the country and now also around the world that are told, oh, we don't have Lyme disease here. You can't have Lyme because we don't have Lyme disease here. So in the book, I do interviews with patients from um, Singapore, from Australia. I've talked to many patients from all around Europe who who face almost even more stigma and discrimination because they feel as though that l- doctors often will say blat- flat out that Lyme disease doesn't exist in their country. Um, and so I think that there needs to be a big push to understand that this is a disease that is, is one of the, the, it is the fastest growing vector-borne disease in the United States, and it's not only focused in just a few states or a few counties. This is something that is affecting people all over the country and honestly, almost all over the world. And I think that as we start to think about um, infectious disease, we normally think about the ways that people travel. We normally think about where people go. But for some reason, with Lyme and Lyme diagnosis, that isn't always part of the question. People aren't asking have you been to a Lyme endemic area? People aren't asking, um, you know, have you ever noticed uh, some kind of bite when these symptoms start appearing? And I think that there needs to be a huge push in sort of general practitioners' offices around the country and honestly around the world to start thinking about this um, as, as a more likely cause of, of patient suffering. Were you at the Mount Sinai Lyme conference? No, and my heart was absolutely broken that I couldn't go, but I've read, I've read very much about it. It was interesting. There was one representative, and I believe it was Anthem Healthcare in the east part of Pennsylvania, and they were working to, so they're a big HMO or medical system, hospital based, and they're working to get in their computer system some Lyme prompts to remind hmm. doctors to ask those sort of questions. And th- they felt that that would be a good way to, to to get awareness in with the docs and, and bring it to the front of their mind because it doesn't come to the front of their mind. Even in endemic areas, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling at this point that the, the awareness – the awareness is more in – non-medical community than it is in the medical community. It's, I, and I don't Absolutely. understand that disconnect. So I tell people Lyme disease is diagnosed over the backyard fence. It's not diagnosed <laughs> in the clinic. Yeah, and I think that um, to sort of come full circle of what we've already been talking about, I had a conversation with a young doctor who is, is working to become a, a psychologist. 
and we, we were talking about all of this stuff, and she said, you know, this sort of breaks my heart because there's this huge push against um, Lyme patients and, and this growing number of Lyme patients. In many ways, like, there's this fear of psychologists, like the people who end up um, institutionalized or end up saying, oh, just go see a psychologist, you're depressed. But there's this sort of, like, very negative feeling attached to that. She's like, that totally breaks my heart. And I said, well, yes, that, that negative feeling definitely exists, but I also think that, that those appointments, that your, your appointments with your psychologist or your therapist, whoever it is, that they have the time to really talk to you and to really hear you. So I think we also need to be building awareness within that community as well, where they can sort of flag, um, flag symptoms as they see them come up and hopefully create uh, more sort of open lines of communication between doctors who are working on the same patient. Yes. Are you familiar with Dr. I think it's Bramsfield. I'm looking it up now. Um, he's a psychologist. He's been a past president of ILADS. Yes, of course. Yes. And he came to Lyme disease through his patients. And at, at some point, his, his contention is, look, the way we've been trained as psychiatrists is to do a thorough examination, a medical examination. And if we do our jobs, we can come up with this diagnosis. And it, he's, he's so right. But again, it has to be in the awareness. And, and maybe the psychiatrist angle is one way we can do this. There are probably quite a few people out there with mental, emotional symptoms that are just have brain inflammation because they've got some sort of infection. Oh, absolutely. There's a young woman um, who I spoke with uh, during the research for the book, um, and she went from being perfectly healthy to suddenly experiencing uh, what seemed like symptoms of, of almost schizophrenia or, or intense, intense depression combined with that. And she was institutionalized, actually, and she continued to get worse and worse without, without none, of, none, of the, none of the drugs that they were putting her on there were helping. And it wasn't until her parents had heard about Lyme that they were able to pull her out and, and even get a blood test. And we all know how unreliable those tests are. But thankfully, she did test positive and she was able to make almost a, a full recovery in, with, with only just a few months of treatment. And she had spent, at this point, months um, within, within the um, hospital that she was staying at at the time. And so I think that there, there definitely needs to be uh, more of an awareness push in, in, in that respect, for sure. Now, you sound like you're doing fairly well, at least right now. And I don't don't yeah. want to put that on you, but you know, there's some pep in your voice, and it sounds like there's some energy behind it. It's probably not just the stress of talking to me. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I I'm very grateful to to have been doing very well, um, and I think that that uh, in many ways my health these days is is what empowers me um, to want to talk about this as much as I want to talk about it. Because when I feel sick, I very want to really want to talk about this. Um, but yes, I've been very grateful to be quite healthy for honestly about the last four years, though I have had um, a few challenging months for sure. And I think that that really my 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 sort of cross to bear these days is um, trying to trying to make sure that I am balancing my work and my health and and my life and my health and and not pushing myself too far because when I if those are the moments when I get too stressed out. Or when I'm, you know, up too late with friends or whatever it is. Of course, um, I'm sure many of your listeners know this very well, but those are the times that I get sick. And so I need to find a way to sort of balance um, those two things better. And I'm not doing particularly well at that all the time, but I definitely um, am, am headed in the right direction on that path. So uh, trying to figure out how to keep myself healthy is definitely going to be something that I think about probably for the rest of my life. But I... I I feel very fortunate to have uh, relative health, especially compared to where I've been in the past right now. And what was the turning point for you? Was it uh, switching it to a different type of treatment? Was it a spiritual awakening? What What was the turning sure. point in your recovery, your Lyme journey? So I, I was quite sick um, pretty much all the way through high school and middle school. Um, and really was unable to, to get my symptoms under control. And this sort of culminated in, in my first neurological experience of Lyme, my senior year of high school, where I ultimately was unable to speak. I was unable to read. I was unable to, 
to drive a car, things that uh, were, were pretty, pretty important to me at the time, of course, and important to all of us. Um, and in, in, that, in that experience, once I was able to get that under control, and ultimately um, it seems as though the real sort of turning point in treatment there was, was attacking the co-infections, which up until that point I hadn't really paid too much attention to. And once I was able to get that under control, the real turning point, I think, for me long-term has just been accepting in many ways that this is something that I have to manage. That for a long time, I sort of thought about it as, like, I would get sick and then it would just be a matter of time or a matter of, of, of certain doses of antibiotics or whatever it was that I was doing, and then I would be better and it would be behind me and I wouldn't have to think about it anymore. And I think that coming to terms with that this is something that I need to manage long-term has really empowered me to take a take a bigger look at, at what my health is um, and, and how I can start to take care of myself. And I think that that really honestly has been the biggest turning point for me is, is seeing this um, more so as a management issue than, than, than a crisis. And one of the things that I am really working towards is I, I want the falls to, I want to fall softer um, when I do get sick. And in the past, what has happened is I, I've, I've sprinted the finish line and then I, I run into a wall and sort of I'm, I'm out, I'm done. And I'm learning that there's things that I can do to sort of, sort of brace that crash a little bit more. And um, every single time, thankfully, that I've gotten sick in the last few years, it's been a little bit easier to manage um, as I take better care of myself in, in the big picture. And what are you, let's ask it this way. You talk about managing your health these days and what's the, what are you focused on like in the past month in terms of managing and balancing your health? So in the past month, I've recently gone through a big, uh, actually a big shift in, in my career as we've established suffering the silence as its own nonprofit and, and that starts to take Take uh, take a lot a lot of the momentum of my day, um, a lot of the focus of my day, and you know running running your own business is quite a challenge um, for anybody, and um, it, it's definitely been challenging for me health wise. So I think the focus of the last month has really been to uh, make sure that I can give myself time to, to slow down and give myself time and permission to um, you know take a break if I need to take a break or take a nap if I need to take a nap or um, things like that so that I don't uh, sort of frame myself at the edges so much that um, I end up hitting that wall again. So it's really, I think for me right now, that's been the focus is, is as I go through these shifts at work in the past, these moments of transition, in the past, these moments of transition have been often major triggers for um, for peaks and, and experiences of, of my illness. And um, I think that what I need to do right now is, is try and make sure that this moment of transition that I'm in um, doesn't, doesn't come to life in that way. Interesting. Do you know any cyclists, like any hardcore cyclists? Any hardcore cyclists? Yeah, they talk uh, about bonking during a race. So as a cyclist, you can go so hard that your your body runs out of glycogen stores and it just – they can't function. It's like a lot of them will just pull to the side of the race and cry or or, or just fantasize about food. It's a very strange experience and it doesn't, it doesn't feel – it doesn't feel good. So I use that as a – in my practice, I talk about bonking because you can bonk in your life. There's – in Chinese medicine, the willpower and this kind of surge to go forward and, you know, hard-charging, smart people like you tend – Tend to be like that, and th- there's a substance called uh, called called Jing in the body, and you can deplete that to a point. Well, the, I back up. I, I'm talking Chinese medicine here, everybody. So don't go looking for <laughs> you know a Jing measurement. It's not going to happen. It's a metaphor for for the overall reserves and the mitochondrial function in the body. So that's that's kind of what the the Chinese are getting at there. But the idea is that you can deplete it. And you can get to a point where you're exhausted and it needs to be recharged. And we, we have this, you know, look, my wife has got this. She, you know, she used to say when she was younger, I'll sleep when I'm dead. It's like, well, you'll be dead soon mm. enough because you don't sleep. 
And I'm still bugging her now. You know, it's like, come on, you need to go to bed. She says, well, I need to do this to calm my mind, whether it's play Sudoku or read a book or watch silly Netflix, whatever it is that she does to calm down. But like, because of that, she doesn't sleep enough. And it's, it's not a healthy thing. So these, these transition times that you're talking about, these stressful life events are often triggers when you've got that latent Lyme disease, you know, your immune system got it kind of under control. It's, it's there lurking in the background, but it's the suckers just always waiting to take advantage of any slip. Absolutely. And I think that, that, that can, that can be frustrating. Like I, I, I feel that frustration with myself a lot. And, and in, in many conversations that I've had, people will ask me sort of what is, what is your biggest frustration with this? And my biggest frustration, I think, is that it seems to be like the sandbag that's holding me back. It seems to be something that I, I can't, I can't shake it. And, and whenever, whenever I, I'm, I'm at full sprint, I feel like that's when it, it says, Oh, no, 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 you know, you, you can't do that anymore. And I, I feel sort of at this, at this war with it in my body, of course, as I'm sure many of us feel. Um, and that can be really frustrating, especially as, as a young professional and I'm surrounded by, people who are who are running full speed ahead and um i i just i just need to, to check myself with that a little bit you know it's funny um I'm, I'm on the young leaders council for global lyme alliance and this past weekend in new york city we had two members who ran the new york city marathon for lyme disease and in uh, ahead of the marathon we said how cool would it be if one day we could all run it together we'll, we'll all get healthy enough that everybody could run it and i i, I wish that in the back of my head but i also wonder um, whether or not that's a possibility for me and sort of keeping, keeping all of that in check, um, and keeping almost, this sounds very sad, but it's almost expectations in check, um, is definitely something I think about a lot. Embrace the sandbag. <laughs> yes, for sure. that is wonderful advice. <laughs> Instead of fighting it, you, you know one one of the things that I find uh, one of my favorite passages from Wendell Berry, who's uh, and now he's I think he's close to his eighties, if not in his eighties. He's a English professor, I think University of Tennessee at some point, obviously retired, and really uh, an American environmentalist and kind of social commentator as well as as a poet. And one of the things he says, he he went from academia, but he always, his roots were on the farm, so he always had a farm. And there's something about manual labor that keeps you grounded. And he said, we, especially now, when, when everybody's being told you can be anything you want to be, there are no limits. And that was all done to encourage people back when we really were struggling with people feeling uh, their spirits just damaged because they were of color or because they were a woman or what. And there's no path for me forward. So the, the encouragement there. But it's it's turned into this fantasy. He said, look, at some point at the end of the day, you can't physically lift another bale of hay. And that's okay. At some point, you just can't do it. And when you're struggling with a chronic illness like Lyme disease, you know, those limits may not be what they were 10 years ago, unfortunately. And it's not the end of the world. If, if again, you said it becomes a management issue. How do we manage our energy? How do we manage our immune system? For, for me, my Lyme disease was caught early. Uh, even a couple of weeks of doxy seemed to be enough, followed up by some teasel and a little bit of acupuncture. So I'm mostly okay. But what I have to manage in my body is my insulin and my tendency toward type 2 diabetes. Both my parents have it. And if I eat just normal, like sandwiches, I'm not even talking like hitting the Girl Scout cookies, I, get, I gain weight and fast. Fast, fast, fast. So at some point, I've, I've had a love-hate relationship with this because it's in my power and I can do things about it. And the bad news is it's in my power and I can do something about it. And sure, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? And so it's, at some point, it's I'm starting to settle into, okay, this is who I am. And I can't have that potato when everybody else around me is having that potato. And I've st- I've stopped mostly feeling sorry for myself, except for moments. Sure. <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. And I think I think you you know that that idea is is also something that is so important 
is that those of us who are living with, with long-term illnesses like Lyme or uh, like many others, bluefish, Crohn's, anything like that, um, there, there definitely needs to come uh, some acceptance into how it influences our sense of self, right? Like this is part of our life experience. This informs the way that we see the world. This informs the way that we carry our bodies and walk on the street every day. And I think that uh, I, I can only speak for myself, but personally that was something I pushed so hard against. And since I've sort of come to accept that as part of who I am um, and as, as, as part of the person who I hopefully want to be as well, um, it, it, it felt like such a weight has been lifted off of my chest. And it's, it's, it's been hugely, hugely helpful for me to sort of come to that, that kind of, of self-acceptance for sure. Right, which brings us back to Suffering the Silence, the book, the Facebook page, the nonprofit, the website, and your partner, Erica. Yes. Tell us about this project, because this is, you have a massive undertaking here. Thank you. Um, yes. So my friend Erica has been one of my closest friends um, since middle school. And in my senior year of high school, which was one of the times that I was the very, very sickest, um, Erica also got very sick, and um, that's when she was ultimately diagnosed with lupus that very year. And we were the type of friends who talked about everything. Like, you name something, we talked about it. Um, but that was one thing that we didn't talk about. And it wasn't until years later, when I was working on the book, and I was telling her about the project and trying to think about ways that, that we could bring it to more people, that we sort of addressed that and realized that Though we had been so close, we didn't feel comfortable enough or we didn't feel like there was space to, to share our experience with each other and, and to, to talk through what it was that we were going through, even though so much of our experience was the same. And that realization was extremely disturbing, um, <laughs> uh, that, that we felt like we couldn't even talk to each other about it. And uh, another sort of thing came up in that conversation, which was in many, in many sort of illness groups, right? You can go to your support group or you can talk to somebody else who shares your diagnosis, but it's a bit fragmented. Um, and I think that so many of our experiences, regardless of our diagnosis, are the same, especially as it comes to sort of sense of self and our experience as people and as humans. And so we wanted to create a space where no matter what you were diagnosed with, um, you could connect with others who could empathize with you. And I think that there is such power in empathy and such power in, in shared experience. And I think that the more that we look for it, the more that we see it. Um, and so we created Suffering the Silence just at the very beginning as, as a place where people would share their stories and they could share it with their families, but also share it with the Suffering the Silence community. And as that has grown, we've done um, photo projects. We've done um, different awareness campaigns. In the coming months, we'll, we'll be doing a series of uh, speaker series and, and, a, and a wellness retreat, all for people to sort of come together to um, find a way to incorporate this into our identity and our sense of self. One of the projects that we're working on right now, actually, is called Illness and Identity. And it's about exploring the way that illness has affected um, other aspects of our, of our sense of self. How it affects, how is it, how has it affected my um, conception of myself as a young woman or as an entrepreneur? Um, and, and I think that pushing for that conversation is very important. And the other thing that we hope with Suffering the Silence, and this is, of course, our lofty goal, but um, what I hope that the book does, what I hope that the project as a whole does, is, is encourages people who aren't necessarily a part of the illness community to see people who are suffering as people and to see people who are suffering as um, not just patients or not just people who are in pain, but people who, you know like love yoga or love their dog or whatever it is. We're all very complex individuals and illness is only one part of, of who we are. Um, so suffering and silence works very hard to embrace who we are as people and not just who we are as patients or as diagnoses. Um, so that's something that we work, we're working very hard to do long term. That's beautiful. And I want to bring this to the reality level and tell a bit of a story about a patient and hopefully I keep his identity hidden enough that I'm not breaking confidentiality. But he came to me at the peak of his career. He was a surgeon and Lyme disease. We don't know if it was a reinfection or a flare or what it was, had him go on disability and eventually a career change. 
So here's a man, you know, he's about my age. He's really hitting his stride. He's published. He's well-respected. He gets the toughest cases and people refer to him because he's so good and he loves it. And all of a sudden Lyme hits and he can't think anymore. He can't hold the concentration. He can't go into the surgical suite. I mean, that's what you're talking about when you're talking about identity and his big struggle was the pain of losing his identity as career as this master surgeon and reinventing his life and recreating meaning, something he had taken care of years and years ago and was moving on to a different stage of his life. But to go back to like being a young person and who am I in the world? How am I going to make a dent in the world? And it's traumatic. It's absolutely traumatic. So this isn't just some theoretical thing and hold hands and sing kubaya. This is real life, day-to-day epic struggles that chronic diseases can do. And Lyme, I mean, we're here in Lyme Ninja so we're talking about Lyme disease, but absolutely. It's not just Lyme. It's chronic illness. And our corner of the world, our little piece, is Lyme disease. Absolutely. And I think that, that the, the other component of that, of course, is that combined with this sort of struggle for sense of self, or struggle for acceptance, many of us uh, can't get out of our own bed. We're, 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 there's, there's true pain and there's true uh, physical, physical change in the body and physical toll that's taken on the body during all of this. And so when, when we talk about this and we talk about sort of acceptance or all of those, all of those nice positive things, I think it's also important to remember that that is not an easy thing to do when you are in pain every day. And it's not an easy thing to do when to, to think about, you know, who you are as a person and accept yourself as a patient of chronic illness when, when your life is limited to, to your bedroom as mine has been at times. And so I think that this is a much bigger struggle, um, than, 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 than just sort of emotional acceptance when the physicality and the, and the physical nature of this disease comes into play. Right. It is the hero's journey and you are tested every way possible. Allie, it's been a Ab- pleasure speaking to you. Sorry to cut you off. Do you have something to say? No, there? no worries. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. I was just going to say uh, 100% agreed. But one thing that I, I always want to sort of leave people with is that there really is a light at the end of the tunnel if you can get there. And and it, it, it hopefully is not suffering forever. So I just, there has to be hope, especially where we are in the world right now, right? We need to be thinking about ways that we can move forward and... and, and um, find positivity. And um, I, I think that for all of us who are dealing with this, that, that, that there really is a light at the end. You know, maybe what there is, is how we embrace the struggle. You know, maybe that's what's important. Churchill said, success is going from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And perhaps what's enlivening and empowering, and I'll say, make up a word, and humanizing is the ability to not give up hope and to keep going, and to keep fighting. And maybe you get better, and maybe you don't, but your spirit is intact. You know, you think of, uh, of people who just have incredible light in their eyes, and they're in a wheelchair and, and can't do anything for themselves. Yes, people have always um, teased me for being sort of an eternal optimist, but it's the one thing that... Um, I, I, I am the most proud of, you know, like that, that's, that's the one thing that keeps me going is that is, is to try and find that optimism, um, whenever I can, even when things are dark. So I think we, we could all, hope is a very powerful thing and, uh, I hope we can find it. Yes. It's so easy to expect the world to delight us and fill us with joy as opposed to generating it internally, especially when the clouds are dark, whether they're political clouds or, uh, emotional clouds or, or disease clouds that are, that are darkening our day. It's, it's the, the challenge is to create your own light and to kindle it within and to be around people like you who are helping keeping it going. So thank you for what you do and thank you for being generous with your time and speaking with me. And why don't you just leave people with web addresses? How can people get yes. in touch with you, your book? Yes. Um, well, if you go to uh, sufferingthesilence.com, all of my contact information is there. I'm always happy to chat or jump on the phone 
um, information about the book is there and about the project as a whole. So I would encourage you all to check out sufferingthesilence.com. Allie, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to chat with you. You know, I loved this interview. And Allie talks about coming to accept her Lyme disease as a part of her identity, which I find I when listening to our Lyme ninjas and I always find that really inspiring. And it reminds me of Brianna Beaver, actually. We did a couple weeks ago, well, months ago now. Um, because as traumatic as Lyme disease can be on the identity, which you, you did talk about during the interview, you can also create a new one that accepts Lyme disease as part of your life and find some peace there. Exactly. And that's really what Brianna was doing with her Limey's Looking for Love Facebook page, right? Yeah. And instead of rejecting everything, all parts of her life to deal solely with the disease, she found a way to merge them all together and find a way to accept having a disease and still continue to live her life as well. Right. And that's really the task. I mean, right now the researchers and doctors are trying to find ways to clear the Borrelia and all the other co-infections and all the other mess that happens with Lyme disease out completely. But until you can muck that stall, uh, it's funny I'm thinking about mucking. We've got ducks. Did you know your mother bought ducks? Completely aside I, here. Sorry, I rest didn't. of the world. Yeah, we, we have 11 ducks. We bought 10, but the person was trying to get rid of them, so we got a bonus duck. <laughs> Anyway, are they, they the big white ones? The big white ones, the Peking ducks. Right. They make a mess. They're anyway, they're just really messy birds. <laughs> okay, so until you muck the stall out from from Lyme disease, the internal stall, all the mess that Lyme disease and infections, co-infections make, it really is a matter of coming to terms with it. And sometimes, actually, a lot of the healing stories that we hear, coming to terms with your disease is often the first step on significantly getting better. It's like we resist, we fight, we plead, we beg, we bargain. And finally, when we come to embrace ourselves as as a person with Lyme disease, like at that point, transformation happens. So these stories that Allie talks about and that Brianna talks about and really trying to embrace the, yourself again, you know, your, your injured self with Lyme disease is a critical path. And remember the hero's journey interview that we did as well? I mean, that's part of it as well. Yeah. Um, crafting yourself as a hero in the journey as opposed to, to a victim in it. You know, we just keep bringing you these stories because we really think that each one of them kind of says the same theme over and over and over again. And hearing it in different ways and from different voices, uh, they, they resonate with us in different ways. So I just encourage you to, to keep listening to us and keep inspiring and keep fighting out there. There, there is a way to embrace yourself. And really that's the fight. And once, once you've got that ninja skill, then you can begin to really the journey forward and put all your energy into healing instead of, uh, really suffering. And, and energy, suffering does take lots of energy and the woe is me type of thinking really just is, is draining and not empowering. Okay, I'll jump down out of my messy stall and off my soapbox. And a quick shout-out, special shout-out to those of you who have joined the Keto Challenge. Starting to get some feedback, and it's interesting. Uh, it's encouraging in some ways. Let me read you a little bit of an email that I got. This is what one Lime Ninja says. She says, I just took my first dose of ketones, and I used 16 ounces of water, but only drank eight ounces. I'm saving the rest for this afternoon sometime. I immediately, even before finishing the eight ounces, felt my vision clearing and energy getting stronger. I could stand up better. I'm not going to go into that now, but I just wanted to give you a short report. So that's one message that we've gotten so far. And really, that's pretty an incredible message there. Aurora, are you still taking your ketones? I am still taking my ketones. And I actually, last week, I missed two days. And it was like, it's like the, the switch flipped back off. It's like after missing those two days, it's like, well, I can't concentrate anymore. And as soon as I started taking them again, I was able to focus and 
get work done again. Now, you got the chocolate swirl with caffeine, and you're switching to no caffeine. How come? I am switching to no caffeine. I just, I am having a hard time going to sleep before, I I, I want to say midnight to make myself look good, but really it's before 1 a.m. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not, I, I need to get up in the morning and this, I just can't fall asleep at night. Um, yeah, so, so I'm hoping that makes a difference. Yeah. You may be a slow caffeine metabolizer. And in that case, the caffeine kind of just stays in you and rattles around longer than normal. Yeah. And so that, that may be what's going on. So that's a good call. Good job. Switching <laughs> that over. We'll be sure to check in with you and see if that makes a difference for you. Mm-hmm. All right. And tell folks what they can do if they're interested in taking a look at the Keto Challenge. Okay. If you want to enter the Keto Challenge, just go on over to LimeNinja.com and you'll see a splash screen. And click on the Learn More button that will take you to the Keto Challenge page. Yes. Now, the Keto Challenge is a win-win-win. Hopefully, You'll take these ketones and have some report like our Lime Ninja did earlier, so you'll feel better, and you'll also feel good about supporting us. We make a little bit of a commission for each person who participates in the Lime Ninja Keto Challenge, and we really appreciate that. We haven't gotten any money for this effort so far, and it's time to for us to make just a little bit back on this. Not that we're going to – it's actually an income, but just to defray some of the costs, the web hosting costs, the – podcast hosting costs, so forth and so on. So that's why we appreciate you trying this. And we really think it's going to be something good for you. We really think it is a a win-win-win. So that's something Mm -hmm. you're even remotely interested in in trying out or checking out. Just go over to our webpage, LimeNinja.com, and you'll see the splash screen there. And just click on that, and you'll get most of the information that you need. Okie doke, Aurora, and you Lime Ninjas out there. As you know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas can hear faster than the speed of sound? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.